Hello and welcome to episode 155 of the Cognicast, the podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. This week we're featuring another conversation that we recorded back in the summer shortly before we got crazy busy. And while I'm sorry it took so long for us to get this one out, I will say it's worth the wait. In this episode, we have a conversation that Gotti had with Camille Fourier about leading and managing in a technical environment. So sit back, open your ears and your mind for Gotti and Camille and episode 155 of the Cognicast. and welcome to the Cognicast. Today is July 13th, and I'm your host, Gadi Shaban. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Camille Fournier. She is a hands-on technologist. She's worked in distributed systems for a time longer than most people in this industry. She became an author. She wrote The Manager's Path, which is an excellent book on engineering management. I have it sitting on my bookshelf behind me. It was immensely useful to me. And now she is a leader in platform engineering at Two Sigma. Welcome, Camille. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Um, We'd like to start our interviews with a traditional question, which is to ask you to relay to our listener a piece of art, an experience of art. It could be music, could be dance, could be anything that's on your mind. Sure. So, A couple of years ago, I was in Amsterdam. I can't remember why, maybe I was speaking at a conference. Um, And there was this exhibit in in their their modern art museums um, by this uh, company called Studio Drift, which is like an artist collective, I think, or who knows, it could be a person. Um, But they do these like really intense, both like virtual reality, augmented reality, but also just like, you know, kind of mind bending art pieces. And one of the ones that they had there was these things that looked like giant concrete blocks that were hovering in a room. Like you would go in a room and they were literally hovering. And I think there must've been some drones involved and some, I, you know, I'm sure it wasn't actually fully concrete blocks, um, but it was, really cool. I mean, their whole, the whole exhibit was really cool. There was a whole bunch of other things that they had that were amazing, but you know, being in this room, these literally like gigantic things that look like giant concrete blocks that are hovering off of the floor and you really, there's no wires, there's no, you know, anything in there. It was just, uh, it was pretty awesome. So, uh, definitely one of my most memorable art experiences of the last couple of years. That's awesome. We'll definitely get a maybe a picture of that for the, for the show notes. Um, but you really couldn't even tell how they were suspended. I think they must've been drones. I like, there was definitely like a worrying noise, you know, that huh. sort of, I don't, it was, it was very cool. Well, um, so I wanted to see if you, if you uh, drew a line of distinction between leading in tech and managing people. Uh, and if that makes a difference about how you approach uh, your working environment and the people around it. Yeah, so um, so I guess there's there's a lot there, right? Um, obviously, I think well, maybe not obviously. I definitely think leadership goes beyond people management. There are leaders in all companies, tech and otherwise, that don't manage people, um, and. More than that, it's incredibly important for good tech organizations that you recognize the value of purely technical leadership and you provide opportunities for people who don't want to manage um, to still be in roles where they are seen as leaders and they're expected to act as leaders. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I just think that's really important, right? Um, you know, not 
not every person wants to deal with people and organizational management stuff. Um, and I don't blame them, right? I, I do it and I, I like it, uh, but you know, it's not the, it's not like the same skills that everyone wants to develop. And you absolutely need people who are just really interested in being in the weeds of how do you make really good technical decisions? Um, you know, how do you choose the right, you know, frameworks and, and products to use to build your systems and, you know, really evaluate the technical trade-offs um, in doing things and how do you help other engineers become better engineers? And there are managers that, that are capable of doing that to some degree. I mean, I think I'm capable of doing some of that to some degree, but I don't have the time to live and breathe the details of technology. And so it's essential that, you know, that, uh, that those of us who are managing also have other people in our organizations who are in technical leadership roles where they really are focusing on, you know, how are we, how are we making really great technical decisions um, as, as a team? So, you know, I think both of those, uh, I think leadership can come from lots of different places. Now, I will say that I think it's very hard to be a good manager of people if you don't lead well. Um, I do, you know, I think there are some people that are like, well, management isn't leadership. And I think that's true, but I also think that when you have people who are in management roles who are not leaders at all, um, that also tends to go kind of poorly, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. so, you know, you, you don't want to have managers who don't, who can't lead it on. People have different degrees of leadership skills, right? Um, but you also don't want to say that the only leadership available is by managing people because that's very limiting. Because of the, the constraints that are imposed as a, as a manager of people? Yeah, just... because of the strengths and, and because of this, and because frankly, like we all have different strengths and, and things we want to focus on and things we want to get good at, right? Um, you know, I think many people can get good at management if they really want to, but not everyone. Um, and you don't want to force someone who's just not interested in being a manager to manage people simply so they can be seen as a leader. That's just counterproductive, right? Um, that's how you end up in these situations that are unfortunately common in the tech industry where you have managers who really don't care about managing at all. Um, and they often do, you know, a, a bad job or a negligent, negligent job at least um, with the management side of their role because they think that's the only way for them to, you know, have authority and technical leadership on a team. And that's that's a failure of leadership from the top when you set that kind of um, situation up where you give people no options but to manage people if they want to be seen as leaders. And I think that's, ah, that's really terrible for people. That's a that's a really great way to put it. It's it's like a lot of managers, they have to be esteemed to their position so that they can exert any sort of technical leadership. But then the the constraints of that position just force the wrong incentives and you end up being a really bad manager <laughs> and a bad yeah. leader. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and look, I think, you know, and it, this is a very tricky topic because, um, you know, I would hope at this point that most companies understand that you can have uh, a career path and and leadership roles that don't require management. You, you like to me, it's sort of bizarre that there are still so many companies out there, and unfortunately, there really are so many companies out there where this doesn't exist, right? Where the only way to advance is by managing people, um, and and I, it's sort of sad, really. I think because you know, first of all, it, it kind of makes it seem like the technical stuff isn't that important or isn't as important. Or I guess on the flip side, it, it sort of says the management stuff isn't that important, right? That it's like, well, it's not that important that you care that much about managing. You just have to do it so that you can continue to be a leader and, you know, uh, be put in a position to make technical decisions or to sort of exert technical influence. and it just is, it's the wrong incentives all around. So it sort of surprises me um, that this is, continues to be kind of a controversial, not controversial exactly, but not widely adopted practice throughout the tech industry, because I really do think it's so important that you provide opportunities for people who want to lead, um, can lead with the skills that they have and that the skills that they're really interested in developing. 
Um, I will say, though, that I do think that just because you should have technical leadership roles that don't involve people management, um, that does not mean that I think people who manage engineers do not need to be technical. So I also think mm. that the best people to manage engineers themselves have technical experience um, that's you know reasonably relevant to the area that they're immediately managing. Um, you know, I think you know just trying to put a generic MBA people manager who doesn't know anything about tech mm-hmm. managing a tech team tends to go really poorly. I mean, anyone who's listening to this podcast who's ever been in a situation where your boss or maybe not your immediate boss, but maybe your boss's boss just had like no idea about technology, um, it can be pretty miserable for engineers to have management that just really doesn't appreciate what it means to be an engineer. So, you know, I, I have experienced some exceptions to that. I know some people who came in to engineering leadership, engineering management without like a super hands-on technical background. Maybe they were in like more product management roles. So they worked with engineers a lot, but they didn't actually write code themselves. And I think, you know, sometimes that works, but it's very rare that you get someone who really has no appreciation for the work of the job that's going to be a great manager for an engineering team. It's definitely the exception. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I've been on that on both sides of that equation um, at, at various points in um, my life. But uh, yeah, you a lot of companies don't realize that they're technology companies too. So they feel a lot more liberty in putting people that don't have a direct uh, finger on the pulse of what the technology um, is doing and understand it at a uh, fundamental level. So you end up not being able to manage your own organization, or sometimes you you can't even sell your product to other places effectively because you don't really know uh, what it can do and what it can't do. Um, but yeah, no, it's true. And I think you know, on the flip side, though, sometimes engineers do this to themselves a little bit. Um, I think there are times when engineers get a little bit precious about the business doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the code or the only thing that I respect or I'm interested in Mm. is, you know, people who like really appreciate the guts and details of, you know, the software and who live and breathe writing code. Right. I mean, you know, um, even managers who were technical, often are just not often but sometimes are dismissed by engineering teams as well but you're not writing code now so you really don't know what you're talking about and that is you know part of the reason that we end up in this situation of just on both sides right there's no career path for individual contributors because you know you have to manage people to move up Mm -hmm. but you know on the flip side like oh well but anyone can manage anyone and management is a generic skill set is that engineers, often engineers in leadership positions, are unwilling to learn how to communicate with non-technical people. They're unwilling to learn how to appreciate the business side of wherever they're working. And I think that's a that's sort of a, a different angle of the challenge you see at more senior levels, where you know, especially at startups, I think you see this a lot, right? People, your technical co-founder you know, is supposed to be managing the engineering team, maybe. Um, They're more interested in writing code and sometimes even to the detriment of, and they're not actually even that interested in the business, right? They're not even interested in like, you know, what's gonna make this company succeed or fail. They're just like, well, but I wanna, you know, I wanna rewrite this thing in this new language that I think is cool, right? I'm really into Rust right now. So like, if we rewrote this in Rust, then everything would be much faster and it'd be super awesome. And we could hire these like really cool engineers. and so. Like, let's go and do that. Um, and I think when when engineers refuse to appreciate um, the non-technical side, and engineering leaders especially refuse to appreciate the non-technical side of a business or a company, they they make it easy to kind of uh, they actually disempower themselves and their role in the organization. So you know, there's there's a lot of different angles to this challenge of like of technical management and and how to be a leader 
um, whether or not you're managing people as a technical person. Um, and I think, you know, depending on your, your interests and your, your skill set, it's either going to, it's always going to involve learning how to communicate with non-technical people to some degree um, uh, and appreciating their side of things as much as you still need to hang on to that understanding of why being, why engineering is hard and why, you know, running great engineering organizations or building great products from a technical perspective can be so hard. Oh, there's so much to unpack in there. I, it, it seems like one of the key things is communication, whether it's, I, I hesitate to say both sides because it, it frames management and and uh, technical contributions to be an, antagonistic, which I don't think they are, but it really does require clear, open communication on uh, both sides, if you will. And some of the best technical people that I've worked with were just excellent communicators where you don't you, you don't ever wonder what's on their mind and when they do tell you something explicitly it's very very clear i mean just from little small habits like not not uh po posting short sentences into slack and if you you know when you choose to communicate and make sure it's pretty well thought out and you're not uh you're not working it out as you're typing into Slack. Um, that you've you, you're well organized, and the same thing from from managers where they'll they'll tell you context and framing and explain what the business is doing and what you're building for, so that it actually does inform technical and architectural decisions. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I you're absolutely right. I think. Communication is certainly one of those skills that um, we, everybody sort of appreciates, but they also, I think, sometimes think is like optional a little bit. And, uh, you know, and it just really isn't whether you want to be mm -hmm. a strong leader from a technical perspective or a manager or, you know, almost anything you want to do if, you're, if your work involves a group, right? If your work involves other people, communication is going to be pretty critical at doing it and particularly critical at doing it at scale. Um, and I, I think that's, I think that's tough, right? I think you, I think that's tough because sometimes engineering is intensely group based and sometimes it's intensely individual and, you know, you're going to experience both of those things throughout your career, certainly as a hands-on engineer, right? Like my job at this point is, is pretty intense, intensely group-based, right? I'm managing lots of people. Everything I do, I need to work with someone else. Um, and so communication, I mean, I would not have gotten into the job that I'm in if I didn't have extremely strong communication skills built up over years of practice. And, you know, obviously I, I write a lot. I speak a lot. Those things actually help me a lot in, uh, in having those really good, uh, clear communication skills. But, you know, I think the interesting thing about being an engineer, so... You know, if you look at open source, open source is such an interesting world. It's an interesting world right now in tech. Um, always an interesting world. But open source is like a very intense example of how tech is both can be both very like solo and group-based kind of at the same time, right? So many successful open source projects start as a solo effort. Um, they start really by one person just having this very strong idea for a thing that they want to build um, and building a prototype of it or building like a, you know, a working V1 and not, not every project, right? There are plenty of projects that maybe it's a small, very closely knit team, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, they, they build something. And if the project is successful um, and particularly if it's successful in a way that's going to grow, all of a sudden the project turns from this very intensely solo effort to a community, like kind of super fast, right? And how you manage that community and how you make that community scale, how you are able to both like take the input of lots of people who are using your product, you've got lots and lots and lots of people have adopted your open source product, and then maybe also scale to add more contributors and, and people who are working on the product um, in order, but keep the product, you know, good, 
that's a really that's like a really hard task, and I think you see a lot of open source products um, struggle with different elements of their life cycle because they often were started by someone who's really good at the solo work. They're really good at working by themselves. They have a crystal clear vision of what they want to do, or they had just a really great product idea for whatever reason. They built something that they really needed, and they built it well enough that it just like hit this market niche, you know, super well. But then they maybe are not the best at communicating and building a team and getting a lot of people on board. And so that that transition from like solo project to you know scaled group effort, you see it in open source, but you see it I think in a lot of a lot of projects at, at companies as well, right? Um, and I think that's one of the big challenges of being an engineer is like sometimes you just need to be heads down focused and the communication part of your job is maybe not as important except that you need to be communicating through that software you're writing, you know, that you, something, right? You need to be turning that product idea into something living. Um, but then all of a sudden you gotta tell people about it. You gotta explain what it does. You gotta get other people able to use it. You gotta get other people able to work with it. And there's just such different skill sets and yeah. you know, it, it's not surprising that this is a challenge for for tech uh, people and and leaders all over the place. It's it, it's rare to have any one person be good at all of those things, and but at least you don't necessarily have to do them simultaneously. But they're they're definitely all in your head at at the same time, whether you're focused yeah. on the tech aspects of it or the sort of evangelism or feedback mechanisms yeah. um there's a really i think i might have mentioned this on a previous podcast but there's a really interesting video of two leaders happen to be orchestra conductors uh, who have completely different approaches to how they interact with the orchestra um my my background is um i've done orchestral conducting and the orchestral musicians are out for blood in in a way that sometimes uh, programmers are out for blood. <laughs> sometimes it's it's a similar it's a similar um, mentality of like who are you to tell me what to what to do? So there there are all kinds of different conducting leadership styles, but in in every case of a good conductor, they have uh, the respect of the orchestra, and they've they've earned they've earned the respect somehow. Um, of you know, forty to eighty people, and they have to maintain the respect the moment they step on the podium. But anyway, there's this, there's this great video online of two legendary conductors, Carlos Kleiber, and um, and Ricardo Muti, and Ricardo Muti has like a very authoritarian way that he's he he like kind of he looks down at the orchestra, not not necessarily not not. Uh, in a I'm better than you kind of sense, but he's he's a commanding presence from above, and it's the the music is like his style is extremely controlled, and I want to say dictatorial, but that that's like that's the effect. Whereas Ka Carlos Kleiber is the kind of leader where he sort of emotes with you and he elicits you to it's just this inevitability of when he raises his arm, like you you just you just naturally go with him. I clearly prefer Carlos Gleiber, but um, but if you just watch if you just watch a clip of these two approaches, you'll it, there's a real analogy to tech where there are some people who just bring you around and they know how to they know how to drive the community at large to to do the right thing. Um, it, it people are people, whether it's in, in tech or uh, or other or otherwise. So yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's it's an interesting it's an interesting analogy that now that you say it because I you know we were talking before we started this podcast about how we both went to to Carnegie Mellon and you you are a musician and I I was an amateur musician um, and it, it definitely makes me think of the different conductors I had throughout my career and how that you know how and how there how that does you know is sort of analogous to tech right because like. Um, you know, I was never like a professional musician. So a lot of the fun of music when you're still learning is like, am I being challenged? Am I playing pieces that are challenging to me? 
right? And I feel like that's a little bit of the challenge of managing people early in their career, even like, you know, through the middle part of their career in tech, right? It's like, are you giving them, are you giving the musicians the challenging pieces and like, you know, they're going to have fun and they'll probably just go along with you if they're, if they're being challenged and working on things that they find interesting. But then at some point it's like, not as much about the challenge, right? I bet if you're a professional, if you're a professional musician, the challenge of playing the pieces is there probably sometimes, but a lot of it is how well are we really connecting with the audience, right? And so, you know, I think as a manager, right, as you, depending on the kind of team you're managing and the and the work that you're leading, it's less about like, am I giving them challenging work to do so much as am I showing them how the work they're doing is connecting with the people that they're doing the work for, how well the product is doing, mm. how well, you know, like, am I helping them appreciate the value of what they're delivering? I think, you know, those are, those are different important skills for for you to you know you to perfect as as a leader um, of, of engineers because you know you don't have an audience that you can look out at and mm-hmm. just see them stand up and give you like rapturous applause or you kind of have to you might have to go out and look for that audience to get that feedback to your team it's super motivational when that happens and I don't know you have to, you have to give people meaning even if it's you know, even if it's hard to to see what the impact is, you got to remind yeah. remind them that what they're doing is like, you know, it might seem it might seem trivial or technical when you're doing it. Like uh, maybe you're changing a dependency or upgrading something, or who knows. But you know, maybe user maybe getting user feedback that says like, "Hey, you've changed my life with this one thing. Thanks for that checkbox." it's so meaningful right i think you know that was a huge thing that i learned when i you know so i was the cto of rent the runway which is a startup here in new york city and i was there for about four years um and rent the runway is like a consumer startup it's as all about renting uh designer dresses and accessories to women um and there's actually a lot of really interesting challenges, business challenges and technical challenges, especially around logistics for that business. So like, in fact, when you uh, ship things out that have to come back, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of like kind of hairy details to those problems. But, you know, by and large at, at companies like Rent the Runway and so many startups out there, there are technical challenges, but a lot of the challenge is, are we building the right product for the user and how are we, you know, how are we kind of moving this business forward? How are we able to iterate and experiment and build different things to see what people respond to, to see what people like? And, you know, I had come from a, a you know, a very much like a technical infrastructure, platform infrastructure kind of world um, coming into that role. And that's the kind of role that I have again now um, where, you know, a lot of the way you keep people engaged is simply with like the the degree of difficulty of the work, right? It's like so much of the work is like, it's, this is just hard hard, interesting technical problems, have fun, like solve them. Um, and you really have to rethink uh, how to approach keeping your team engaged and inspired um, when the problems themselves, like any individual problem, maybe is not the hardest technical problem they've ever solved. Um, the way you execute against those is super high degree of difficulty, much higher, I would say, than a lot of bigger company infrastructure teams actually end up being. Um, and the, but the, and the, the goal is different, right? It's less about like build the perfect software to solve this problem so much as like, you know, figure out how you can most quickly iterate to a product or, or a thing that the people, people are really going to respond to and, and, you know, engage with. But what I took away from that experience was that there is value even when you have engineers who are solving hard problems of keeping them in touch with the people that they're solving those problems for. Um, that, you know, that that people will build better solutions and feel more engaged at work beyond you know just getting to work in a cool new programming language or beyond getting to solve this like really challenging distributed systems problem if you also help them appreciate who they're solving that problem for and like why they care and why this is important do you recommend uh any like strategies for connecting uh keeping keeping technical people connected to their users besides well talking to them or yeah I mean obviously like talking to them is important I think it depends on who your users are right so I think a lot of um, 
a lot of companies that have like consumer users, like the product teams are usually doing lots of user research. And they're often very excited when engineers are like, hey, I'd love to like watch a user research session. Hmm. Like they're, you know, because so often engineers are like, eh, product, whatever, you know, you're just doing what you're doing. Just give me some requirements. And I think, you know, my experience is that when you go and say like, hey, I'm, I'm super interested in how the users are responding to what you're thinking or how you're getting the information about what they like about these products in order to make future decisions, they're often very excited to have engineering there to sort of watch and learn from that from that experience. So I think that's that's one thing if you're at like, you know, a bigger consumer company. Um, I think, you know, when your users are like internal, like a company is like mine where I'm building software for other engineers at the company. Um, you know, I do think talking to the people that you're building the software for is useful. I actually think that that's one of the, I think that's a good side of providing support, internal support for software and making sure that, you know, you're trying to share the, the work of providing support is that you are kind of forced to talk to your users in that process and get to know what they're doing. I think good managers are good at like bringing users into their team meetings and having them present about the stuff that they've built using your software. So like, you know, any any opportunity you have to, you know, directly engage uh, with the users or just to like understand the business a little bit better to see how your part of the work is unlocking value. Um, I think the, those are things that managers and product managers can be looking for and engineers can be seeking out themselves. Interesting. I I worked at Living Social a while back, which is a company that did daily deals. And part of our training was uh, to go to the sort sort of support call center and just listen in on um, calls that came in and how they were handled by the the support team, which gave you like a a good impression of what what the what the problems were being encountered in the wild even though even if they were like you know two steps removed from what whatever you were doing um it at least get gets you <laughs> listening to customers whether whether they're they're angry or happy or whatever usually usually uh not as happy when you're making a support call but um but still i mean it's important perspective to to know who your customers are and um connect with them even if it's other developers um interesting i i wanted to dive into a little um sub part of this discussion about management but do you believe that engineering management is a technical discipline you kind of alluded before that it it is a manager is not some generic skill that you can that you can just plop down into an organization and be effective or maximally effective. Um, but what about engineering management um, in particular? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a big believer in the technical side of engineering management being a really important part of the job. Um, and, you know, I'm a believer in it for so many reasons. I mean, I think. The first reason is that I think it's, I think credibility is important with engineers, right? Again, we were just talking about conductors. You know, my guess is that, you know, part of the reason that orchestral professional musicians can be somewhat hard to conduct is they're like, I'm a master of my craft. Mm -hmm. You know, who are you to tell me how to play this passage, right? Um, and so you better have some credibility, some ability to have credibility with them. That like, look, like I know a lot about music. I know a lot about audiences. I know a lot about, you know, maybe I don't know how to play the bassoon, but you know, I probably, probably to be a successful conductor, you need to play, know how to play at least one instrument pretty damn well, right? Yeah. You know, I know, I know about performing, I know about music and I know how this is going to land, right? Um, and I think very similarly with engineers, right? Engineers, want to be guided, particularly when you're a, what we call line manager, right? When you are managing people, you know, individual contributors directly. Um, you know, generally speaking, you want a manager that you feel like you can learn something from. And, um, and that doesn't have to be like the deepest technical stuff, 
right? Um, I don't think that every manager, in fact, I think it's a bad thing if, if, if the managers are all like the best engineers on the team. That's probably actually a waste, <laughs> right? If they're really amazing engineers, like maybe it'd be better if they were hands-on engineers, especially if that's what they want to do. But you do want a manager that you can, you know, bounce ideas off of and say like, hey, like I'm stuck on this problem. You know, do you have a suggestion for how to approach it? Can you appreciate my work? I think that's another element, right? Like, you know, I don't care if, um, you know, my friend who works as an accountant, um, like thinks that my code is awesome. I mean, like, that's nice of her to think that my code is awesome, right? But like, I'm much more interested in like a technical person that I respect that can actually say, oh, wow, like I'm really impressed by the way you chose to use, you know, this storage system because it had, you know, these availability requirements and therefore, and you really appreciate that like, you know, this overall system needs to meet this particular need. So it actually doesn't need to have super highly available storage. Hmm. It's fine. You can cache it or whatever, right? Like it's great to be appreciated by somebody who you actually think uh, understands your work and, you know, has has taste, has a sense of, you know, what work is important and what, you know, what decisions are hard and what's hard about your job. Um, and so I think that that part of the credibility is really important just for being effective. And then the other thing is just that like, look, uh, writing code and building software is just different than the work that most people do. Like, I really do think it's a different kind of job. You're, it's very rare that you build the people in jobs create these living things that have such massive consequences when they when they break, but that are expected to change all the time, right? Like it's yeah. bad when a bridge falls apart, but you don't build a bridge and then rebuild it every week or day or month or even three months, yeah. right? Like, you build it for cars <laughs> and now you have, you know, something completely different. Yeah, you know, I think the, the living nature of software is really pretty unique, right? You don't make a marketing presentation that, you know, you don't make a marketing campaign that then, like, changes, you know, significantly, uh, you know, day over day for the most part, right? And and certainly not in the, like, you're going to get paged in the middle of the night about your, you know, your marketing campaign. I mean... I'm sure that could happen, right? Like, whoops, we like ran an ad in this market and turns out that was super offensive. And like, yeah, you'll get, you'll, you'll get, get you know, all about that, right? But like, hopefully that's like a once in a career boo-boo. Um, and like, whereas for us engineers writing production systems, that unfortunately, I mean, I wish it were like a once in a career thing. Unfortunately, it's really not, especially with the scale that we tend to be supporting, right? You're building a product for, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of billions of people, man, like there are just so many opportunities for that product to fail, but also it has to change all the time. So like, it's just such a different type of work than I think most humans have ever done. And therefore I, you know, being led by people who have never really had to live with that, had to do work in that way, had to live with the consequences of doing that work. Yeah. poorly right i think that's really hard i think that's why you want people who kind of really get what it means to like write and support and scale and change software in these leadership positions because it's just so different it's just so different than almost anything else that anyone else has to figure out how to do it, it really is you can like you can reach such scale just by turning knobs these days, but that also scales your consequences in a lot of, in a lot of times. So yeah, I guess you have to sort of have, have infectious understanding in, in the organization. And, and it's, it's rare. I think it's, you know, it's probably the, the software led world has probably outscaled our, um, our adaptation to it. And, yeah, as at least in, or, in inside organizations. Um, wow, how interesting. I wanted to ask you about uh, being a technologist in these uncertain times. I think with the, the coronavirus affecting the entire world, uh, technologists have probably been, um, unless directly, t technologists have 
probably the easiest to um how do I how do I say this without being callous um it's been easier for technologists to adapt to this world because in in a large part we've been a lot of us have been remote first a lot of us conduct our activities online through you know github through slack through through email um so we've been perhaps the best adapted to the crisis but i can speak from personal experience that it is it has not been easy to be uh to 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 be living under this and it's you know even ordinary stressors have just become you know 10 times magnified under um under largely the same at least for me the same uh, living conditions you know nothing's like materially change i don't go to the coffee shops anymore i don't go out i'm in a state where it's pretty much unsafe to go out now and um okay so that's easy for me i just don't get in my car and i you know i i wake up try to try to walk my dog and you know uh do my do my job but a lot of people are facing um difficult family situations, difficult schooling situations, um, as well as, you know, economic unsafety and um, just physical unsafety. And so I just wanted to, well, A, I want to express that, and, and B, I want to ask how you are adapting to, to this um, ever-changing world. Yeah, I mean, oh, it's tough, you know, I... I think, um, so I'm here in New York City. So like we went through hell um, and I have been in the city proper the entire time. Um, you know, we didn't try to leave and go elsewhere. Um, you know, fortunately have enough space and, and other reasons that it made sense for us to stay. Um, but you know, I think, I mean, I think this is a very interesting time. I, I definitely have uh, an evolving appreciation for, like, what this is going to do to, like, work in the future. Um, and I still, I still don't, you know, I still don't know. Um, but so, like, for example, I will say, like, I don't like working remote. <laughs> um, I, you know, I like going into an office and I know that many of your listeners will think I am completely, you know, uh, masochistic or whatever for, for liking that, uh, office life cycle. But like well, my Not job is to, <laughs> like, you know, at this point in my career, my job is like 75 to 80% talking to people. Um, and sure I can do it over video chat. It just sucks a little bit. Yeah. Work or video chat, and, and you know, and one on one is actually not so bad. Um, but like the larger the meeting, the worse it is over video, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, frankly, like giving a presentation, giving a talk I, to uh, you know an audience over video chat is just—it's hard. It's hard to do it well. It's hard because you can't see the audience reactions. Yep. You know, usually or at all in many cases. Um, you're just kind of like talking into the void and hoping that what you're saying is landing to people. And, you know, for people in jobs like mine where, look, like a lot of my job is not just the actual content of the words that come out of my mouth or the words that I type in the screen or whatever, but it is all the stuff around that. It is me reacting in real time to you um, hearing some piece of information. You're mm -hmm. excited, you're unhappy, you're nervous, you're, you know, what, what, you're furious, right? Like, you know, or you're just sort of blase, right? You're not, you're, you know, you're not reacting at all, right? These signals are so important for a leader in my level of management to do their job well, and they are very hard to get. I mean, you can get them over video chat, but not as well, not as easily. It's, it's way harder, um, and certainly not at, at scale. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, you can you can maybe get it one on one, but in a yeah. in a room full of people, you can feel the reaction. You can feel the group. Yeah, right? and you can't yeah. feel a tile of uh, of icons on a on a Zoom window. You just you can't, you know. You you really can't, and I think you know, and frankly, you know, I'm not a fan of being in front of my computer all the time. So that's the other thing is that like. <laughs> You know, we, we had laptops at my job and I didn't like carry my laptop around with me. And of course, you know, you have your phone also and that's that's going around with you. But like, I'm very much, I was very much a, I don't really have my laptop open and in front of me in every meeting. And for many reasons, one of which is just like, I get distracted. Like there's a lot going on, right? I got Slack messages coming and emails and mm -hmm. you know, what's going on on Twitter. And like, there's just, there's so much to distract you um, when you've got a computer in front of you. And, now I have no choice. I can't do my job, but to have a computer in front of me. It's the channel that you have now. <laughs> you know, and it's it's hard. It's harder to concentrate. It's harder to focus. It's hard for me to focus personally. Um, so, you know, I, and so like my feeling about all of this is that like, I am, I don't still, I think, don't think that, you know, we're going to come out of this pandemic and everything is going to be like, oh, companies are all remote all the time. <laughs> but I'm a little afraid that we will go too far in that direction. And maybe that would be the right thing if we did that, right? Like it, that could in fact be the way that things should be. And that would be better for a lot of people. It would be worse for me because I don't want that. I like in person. I like seeing people and interacting with them. You know, I do think it would be good for us to genuinely have more flexibility about being in an office every single day. And I think a lot of companies have said that they have that, but they don't really have that. But, you know, I would be sad if I, you know, if everything went to fully remote for so many reasons, uh, for so many reasons. And I also just, I don't know, like, I think there's so many repercussions um, of that. So. You know, I guess the current situation, I mean, like just ignoring the horror of yeah. the world, which is also, you know, we're also just in a, a completely bizarre situation for all of us, right? That, you know, means that none of us is really figuring out this remote life in a in an organic and nice way. We're all just thrown into it with a million other <laughs> right. We're moving from crisis to crisis. Yeah, you know, so it's like, you don't want to overgeneralize, but like, you know, what have we learned? Well, we've certainly learned that you can get your job done remotely. I think, you know, most companies have sort of figured that out. Um, and I think my impression with tech is like, that's been pretty easy, right? We, I mean, we already kind of had the equipment, even those of us who were going into the office every day, like, yeah, but like we can get it done. I don't know that we know whether we can get it done as well. I think for some things, yes, but like, I, it still remains to be seen, in my opinion, how easy it will be to do strategic type thinking and planning and, and larger, bigger group things that you kind of do want to group together to be thinking about. Um, I think maintaining culture is super hard remote. Mm -hmm. I think maintaining, you know, engagement is super hard remote. I think it's, it's really hard, you know, team building, like, God, I don't want to sit in front of another video chat after work ends to do a group team building exercise. <laughs> like that just does not sound like fun to me. To they, be I mean, a forced interaction can be completely counterproductive too. Yeah, and like, you know, great, you like make them optional and whatever, but it's like the only, you know, the only thing I have is the same box that the rest of my day is, you know, spent in front of. And I kind of just want to at least like move to a different room and sit in front of a different box, you know, if nothing else, right? It just, so I, I feel like, um, I do feel like there's a lot of challenges that are going to continue to pop up over the next few months as we still, as we sit through this. And I'm definitely not sure what's going to happen at the end of all of this. I, uh, my, I, I think it's really hard to say. It, it's totally a mixed bag and, uh, yeah, remote remote is great. It's just not all that it's cracked up to be, and it's not a solution to everything. And I don't know. I mean, it. it I have a, a couple friends that um, have have gotten flack for trying to disconnect, and they uh, they took off corporate Slack and email off their personal phone, and somehow that was a problem. <laughs> and it's like, what kind of 
you know, what kind of world is that where, you know, you you don't have your own um you, you don't have your own time away from um being connected all the time. And when you are connected, you're connected through the same through that same, you know, through your through your webcam or through your uh, through your microphone. Um my wife has been teaching piano and uh she, you know, she taught in person up until this whole stuff um happened and now she's had to figure out like how do I teach a piano lesson over zoom you know what's the best camera angle for myself and do I put it over my fingers do I put it from the side why am I dealing with camera angles and not teaching piano and you know what about my students are they are they connecting through a phone is their battery going to run out are they doing like 10 different activities in the background like it's not easy and it's uh, also it's like, I don't know it's exhausting yeah one, one hour on a zoom call is totally not the same as one hour speaking in front of people it is way more draining to have your uh like every micro expression on your face parsed you know you just yeah. feel like you have to be on when you when you when there's a camera on you and you know when when you're in person you can just turn away for a second or you have a lot more you have a lot more latitude you know you have your three-dimensional yeah. being um yeah no it's true and you know like i'm really worried you say like your friends are getting in trouble for taking slack off their phone which is terrible don't yeah. do that if anybody's listening to me who has the power to make that decision come on don't do that <laughs> um but like i also feel like it's just it's peeling back the ridiculous inability that so many managers and leaders have to actually think about and measure quote unquote productivity and like have have a sense of what sustainable productivity really is. You know, I think that for the first few months, a lot of people just churn, just they wrote a lot of code. A lot of code was written. Certainly in my org, that was very much true. Um, and I think it was very much true because people didn't have anything else to do and they wanted to be distracted. And at least for my team, we were at a particular point in planning where like pretty much everyone knew what they were supposed to be doing. Like we were at, in an execution period of time, right? There wasn't a lot of planning to be done. You know, it was sort of set up to, to coast through. But, you know, you get these you, managers, I think, get sort of blinded to what productivity and sustainable productivity really is. You know, it's, it's a little bit like related to this like 10x engineer myth. It's like, oh, well, there's that engineer that just produces so much more code than everyone else. And, and like I have managed people who produce a lot more code than anyone else. And the vast majority of them uh, did more damage than good uh, through that. Not all of them, right? Like, in fact, like the, the better engineers are more like the two X. So the ones that are like just a little bit more productive, but also take the time to make sure they're making good decisions, um, with the, with what they're producing, right? Like that's a, that's a good balance, right? All right. Like you're really able to produce a lot, but also you don't rush so much that you just never check your assumptions and you just go. Um, and I worry a little bit that like, oh, everyone's writing so much code and they're working so hard. And it's like, you're going to come back to hell. You're going to come back to just like poor decisions and poorly communicated because people aren't seeing one another. And it's you can't just tap someone on the shoulder and ask them a question. So you just like go with assumption upon assumption upon assumption. <laughs> and, you know, I, just, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see the software that comes out of yeah. this, frankly, a lot of teams. Because I think that now the... The impediments we put that you know being remote puts up are arguably to communication, are to lightweight, simple communication, right? Because every communication is it just either feels really heavyweight, it's a video call, which is just like, oh god, not one more of those, or it's like a Slack, and you know, it's hard to know when you can interrupt someone on Slack or not. And you know, you worry about your words being parsed and you can't see their face and you can't see their real reaction. So if you don't have a strong relationship with them already, you might just be a little afraid to ask a dumb question or check an assumption. And so you're just going to see people that's like, well, like what we haven't made any impediments to is writing code, right? The same impediments that existed or didn't exist. Interesting. For the most part. 
are writing code. I mean, Modulo, like, of course, all of those of us who are parents, myself very much included, are dealing with a whole different kind of life hell, right? So, so ignoring our life hell, right? Like, writing code is probably about as easy or as hard as it ever was, right? You know, you've, you know, you've probably still got the same computer you were mostly writing it on. Assuming your internet connection is okay, you're probably still going through the same code review process. Mm-hmm most cases, right? So it's harder to communicate, but it's not any harder to write code. And you have nothing else to do. And you may very well be getting pressure from your boss to be like, oh, shit, like everything's going in the toilet, better be super productive. <laughs> What's going to happen? We're going to get a lot of code written. Probably enough of that code is going to be written with unchecked assumptions that we are going to regret the hell out of in six to 12 months. And that wow. is my... That I is really my, my uh, <laughs> doom, doom saying that, which I actually hope is not true. Um, no, I, I think you're already true. right. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Wow. So yeah. it's like it's like when you uh, if you if you drop something on your on your fingernail and then six months from now that there's like a, a blue spot that just moves ever closer to the tip. That's that's where we are in 2021. Hopefully, we'll be. Hopefully we'll be out of this crisis, but we'll we'll be dealing with a software crisis of all the all the unchecked uh, technical assumptions that were put in in March and April. I mean, I I think it, you know with Mar- in March and April, and frankly, like even moving forward, right? You know, because it's not like it's gotten any easier to for us to communicate with one another. It's just that now also people are hitting the wall, and even those who are really productive in March and April. I mean, I just. Everyone I talk to says to me, I'm hitting the wall, I'm hitting the wall, I'm hitting the wall. Like people with kids, without kids, everyone was hoping that this thing would be, you'd shelter, you'd hunker down, the storm would pass and things would get better. And that did happen in New York to some extent, but obviously that did not happen most of the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And even in New York, I mean, even here, it's like, yeah, like things are, you know, I'm no longer hear sirens all the time outside my window, but like, we all know it's just like a temporary reprise and then, you know. Yeah, you can't let up, it's exhausting. Can't let up, it's exhausting. So, you know, if you, if any of listeners are, are, are worried that you're all alone, that everyone else is doing fine and you're the only person that's hitting a wall, you are not alone. Almost everyone I talk to has repeated the same thing that they, that they're really feeling it, take a break if you can, you know, um, even though you can't really exactly take vacation, like any kind of break you can take and be kind to yourself because it's, you know, we're in for a long haul here, unfortunately. Well, I was going to ask you uh, traditionally for a piece of send-off advice for our listener, but I can't think of anything better than that advice that you just gave, which is be kind to yourself and realize that we're all in the same boat and we're all dealing with the same thing and uh hopefully this too shall pass i sure hope so well on that note (laughs) it's been it's been wonderful talking to you um i thoroughly enjoyed that and i i hope our listeners do too um maybe we can have you on again in the future well thank you so much for having me it was fun All right, that's a wrap. have been listening to the CogniCast. The CogniCast is brought to you by Cognitech. You can subscribe to the CogniCast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Camille Fourier, who is at Let me try that again. Who is at S Camille, I guess it's at sign S-K-A-M-I-L-L-E on Twitter. Our host this week is Gotti Shaban, who is at Smash the Past on Twitter. 
Episode cover art is by me, Russ Olson, based on an original photo of a Penrose tiled origami by the Flickr user, and I'm just going to spell this one out, F-D-E-C-O-M-I-T-E. See the link in the show notes for license and other information. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jared Benford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our main theme music is by Ben Camphouse, who produces music as Pattern Shift. Look for it on any of the major streaming services. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening, and stay safe out there. Wear your mask, wash your hands, practice social distancing. Thanks for listening.